This program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. We know that young brains can learn more rapidly and remember more rapidly. And I have this dream Uh, Because when I was a child, I I did learn French, but I learned it when I was in high school, and I could never speak French without an accent. So my dream is, what if I could just go back to those early developmental critical periods of learning, you know, turn those mechanisms back on, make an old brain young, and then I could learn French without an accent. That's Carla Schatz. Her research into how our brains wire themselves up Later to coin the phrase, cells that fire together, wire together. That phrase is now a foundational approach to how brains develop. In 2016, she shared the Kavli Prize in neuroscience. Today, she's exploring the potential of a completely unexpected discovery that could unlock our adult brain's ability to learn in that extraordinary way we did when we were children. I'm so happy you can be with us today. This is going to be so much fun. The thing that, ca- <laughs> the thing that catches my eye, probably everybody's eye, is the phrase, making an old brain young. <laughs> and I got just the brain for you. No, I, I don't know. I think we could fight over that. I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you mean by that? I mean, in what way do you think it's possible or could be possible to make an old brain young? Well, we know uh, that young brains um, can learn more rapidly and remember more rapidly. And I have this dream uh, because when I was a child, I, I did learn French, but I learned it when I was in high school and I could never speak French without an accent. I mean, I can speak French. And of course, all of us can learn languages, even as adults, but it's hard And it's very hard to get your motor system to cooperate and uh, speak perfectly. So my dream is, what if I could just go back to those early developmental critical periods of learning, you know, turn those mechanisms back on, 
make an old brain young, and then I could learn French without an accent. Just so I get that first part, there is a period in our early childhood where we can learn a language without an accent, a second or third or fourth language without an accent, because we have the ability somehow to learn more rapidly than we do later in life. Is that right so far? Perfect. I've always been interested in why, you know, why why does that capacity for learning like a sponge, I guess, as some people like to think baby's brain is like a sponge, you know, why does that why does that end? And if it does end, can we understand the mechanism so we could turn it back on again? And one thing we could ask is what's going on in the baby's brain and in the young child's brain during these developmental critical periods? Circuits are being tuned up with use, and that kind of circuit tuning uh, involves stabilizing some connections, these famous synapses in the brain, the, the connections between one nerve cell and another. So some are stabilized with use, and others are actually eliminated and pruned away. So one idea is you can think of babies as kind of, in, in the context of language, uh, Patricia Cool has coined this idea that we're all born as citizens of the world. <clears throat> we have the capacity to learn many languages during this early developmental critical period. And if we don't use some of those languages, then some of the circuits that might be required, I'll give you a good example, distinguishing an R from an L, or, you know, and so these phonemic distinctions, we don't, use, we don't need to make that distinction. We don't keep those connections. So this is kind of a use it or lose it. We usually talk about that in the context of aging, but mm. it's also even more true in development. If you think about it, if, if everything we learn requires uh, just building new connections and synapses in the brain— over our entire lifetime, eventually our brains and our head would explode because... <laughs> because you just keep making so many new connections. There's no room. <laughs> this this would seem to make this kind of idea of a huge brain that, that grows out of the head is, is like the stuff of really good science fiction. <laughs> yeah, <well you> <laughs> Every time yeah. they come down from another planet... Yeah, they're they, always like that. They have these huge heads. I'm interested in the, what you have to say about the synapses. For, for instance, you've said that the synapses are where memory is stored. Is that is that right? Yeah. Well, how does I that work? Because the synapse, every time I've seen a, a, an image of a synapse, it's just been an empty space between two cells. Is there some kind of black box in there that's storing memories? How does how do you suppose <laughs> how does a memory get stored in the synapse? Uh, there is a gap from one nerve cell to the other, and that is the synapse. And at that, the electrical signal is converted to a chemical signal. So in a way, the digital signal is converted to an analog signal at the synapse, and the receiving side of the synapse, the other, the next nerve cell has that analog, receives that analog signal and can add it up with other 
synaptic input, other analog signals. So now, in just instead of the black box, imagine hundreds of thousands of these synapses that every nerve cell in your brain is receiving from other nerve cells and the kind of addition or subtraction that can be going on. What neuroscientists have discovered in you know, the last 20, 30 years is that the memories are actually stored at synapses in the sense that the strength of the computations is related to the learning. And the most amazing thing that's happened recently, it's been possible to peer into the mouse brain while the mouse is learning a new task and uh, look directly at the synapses because you can sort of label them and make them glow in the dark with fluorescent tags. And what do you see? What's happening? And so they grow. They get bigger when the mouse is learning if you're looking in the places of the brain where you think the learning is happening. And then um, scientists can experimentally, once the mouse has learned, and you can check that it learned its task, like it learns how to go to a new place in a maze, you can then actually make those learned synapses go away Mm. by dissolving the structure of the synapse. And once you dissolve that learned synapse, the mouse forgets. So you could use this technique in a way to help people get rid of stressful memories? Well, okay, so um, you couldn't use that particular technique, which is highly invasive, but the idea of somehow making connections go away in order to eliminate uh, you know, um, stressful, traumatic memories is certainly... Uh, I think it's being used in cognitive behavioral set therapies no. all the time. Um, so I get the impression from what you're saying that there's a little bit of the overall computation taking place at each place where the, the neurons meet the synapses, but that it would take thousands of them to create an actual memory of an, of an event. So this is, this is the 64,000 synapse question. Actually, it's a... Yes, your 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 view um, has really led scientists recently to to search for the you know what people have called the engram, which would be that uh, population of neurons and of course their synapses that um, would represent a memory, right? And sometimes memories are highly distributed, so you would have to look in many different places. Um, And this is not an area where I'm an expertise, but I'm very excited about the idea that, again, in the mice models, you can begin to identify at least the neurons that are part of the circuit. still can't really see all the synapses that are part of that elaborate circuit that is storing memories, and especially because some of them are distributed. So you can even lose parts of the brain and still retain memories or access to those memories. I wonder if the fact that it's distributed around the brain, that one memory is made up of many tidbits, I wonder if that contributes to the idea that you can call up something through an associative process, that there are characteristics of one memory that are like another memory that 
are found in the same circuit and you can through the associate because I find creativity to be very associative where you get in touch in a way with the unconscious part of your brain. Yeah, but you know, to go back to the making old brains young, I mean my my question to all my colleagues who study memory and this kind of associativity is why is it that when I can't remember uh, the name or uh, something during the day, then it certainly, it always comes back to me at, you know, many hours later, usually at night when I sit up straight in bed and I think, oh, that's it. <laughs> and, you know, what it is, what is it? So it's stored, it is stored. So there's both the storage of, uh, the, of the memory itself and then there's also basically retrieval, right? And these are, but why is it that in our sort of more, you know, mature brains, uh, you know, we can't we can't have access to that. And I don't know the answer to that. But I wanted to come back, actually, to, you know, the original young, you know, young I, I, I want to brain. do that, too. That was the next thing I was going to ask you. Oh, cool. Because I was going to say, you know, wouldn't it be great if it was possible to, you know, turn back on that uh, ability of early learning, which would mean, could we, by identifying these breaks, these molecular breaks that seem to convert uh, young learning to the more stable adult forms of learning, if we could take them off, and what would that potentially, you know, do for us? And I think, you know, what's exciting at the moment is that uh, several labs have demonstrated the presence of these molecular breaks, at least in mice models of uh, uh, these developmental critical periods, and have shown that you can uh, actually take them off in adult mouse brains, and then the mice have learning capacities that are very similar to the juvenile uh, rapid learning capacities. And, you know, so I haven't heard mice learning French without an accent yet but but there are mechanisms that have allowed us to to put back this early developmental critical period so it's it could be that our adult brain has an intrinsic capacity for more learning but somehow it is inhibited in some way or braked in order to create more stability. I mean, we don't know that yet. We don't know what the downside is. That's what I wanted to ask you. What's the downside? I mean, let's say not sold in any stores, order the pill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I often. Would you, would you I, take the pill? Yeah. You know, well, what would you? <laughs> I don't do think, you think so. Not right away. No. <laughs> You're so smart, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. Not it, yet, right? Because you, don't, you know, don't, don't know what, what, what you're giving up to get that. Nature right. has given us this one formula. Right. But but here's an idea. I mean, I mean, I might take the pill. Let's say so. What we know. Let me tell you a little more, at least about uh, some of the molecules we've been studying, which are really unexpected because they were thought to only be immune system molecules. But anyhow, we found them in the neurons. As I remember, as I remember, when you found them, people told you that you had made a mistake. Yes. You, you, you and your postdocs had made a mistake. And it couldn't possibly be true because that molecule is not found in the brain. And yes, you, had I mean, the, you had the confidence to say, no, we got it. We, that was great. Yeah, well, if you look at my career, you could say that we've been stumbling through science for the last, you know, 30, 40 years because we <laughs> have made a lot of mistakes. Anyhow, 
But yes, so we were we were told that it couldn't be because you know these molecules were very important for uh, infection and immunity. Um, but in evolution, uh, what we think is that these molecules actually co-evolved in in nerve cells as well, and they are part of the breaking system. Um, one of them is called paired immunoglobulin-like receptor B, big mouthful, but it's a receptor. And uh, when we remove its function um, in mice, we've uh, discovered that we can reopen their developmental critical periods. Mm. It's a receptor on the surface of the, of the cell, of the neuron? And it's right at the synapse. And you can genetically knock it out with, with a, a strain of mice you've bred to do that. Yes. And we've made a little pill because since it's a receptor on the surface, you can target, you can create molecules that will block that outside uh, function of the receptor. Uh-huh. So we made a pill that uh, blocks you the you function. May, I just want to explain to the podcast audience, you're making quote marks every time you say pill. Yeah, because... Air okay. quotes. Yes. there. It's really not a pill yet. You know, yeah, I mean, right. it's a... It's a it's actually a, um, it's a, a pro, what we would call a prototype. It's like a proof of principle. Uh-huh. You know, it isn't going to work in us anytime soon. So the idea was, you know, could we make something that we could give like a pill? And we did that to the mice, and we discovered that they could create new synapses in the adult brain because what we'd done is taken off the brake by blocking the function of that receptor. And we didn't expect that it would create new synapses, but it makes sense because for new learning, it's thought that you certainly would like to have either stronger, strengthen existing synapses or perhaps even make new synapses. Can you do just a little at a time so you don't you don't make it make the whole thing unstable? Yeah, so then that then you know you sort of think, well, maybe you could just give it. Um, maybe even just locally. So let's say, let's say you know I have a stroke or something, mm-hmm. and um, which, by the way, does is known to remove synapses from mm-hmm. the brain in addition to removing neurons and whole circuits, or Alzheimer's disease, where again, you know you're you're actually losing your memory because you're losing your synapses where memories are stored. So could you? even give this, even in a temporary way somehow, for brain retraining or relearning after damage, let's say, with stroke. And I know, I think I would risk that if, you know, my grandma had a stroke when when I was young, I was in college. I think it kind of directed me toward neuroscience in some ways. You know, she knew exactly what had happened to her and she was miserable and no one could really help her. So, you know... Wouldn't it be great if we could have given her this pill, at least temporarily, and helped her somehow to recover function, uh, at least some function? Maybe she could have spoken better, you know? Who knows? Uh, That's an idea, at least, you know, right now. So, of course, ultimately, everybody always wants that perfect pill that will just be, you know, target just that one thing. 
And uh, of course, we're way away far from that for most brain diseases at the moment. When we come back, Carla Schatz tells me about what led her to her passion to understand the human brain. It was her love of art as well as science, along with a daredevil approach to skiing. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience that transform our understanding of the very big, the very small, and the very complex. From scientific breakthroughs like the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 and the detection of gravitational waves to inventing new fields of research, Kavli Prize laureates push the limits of what we don't know and advance science in ways that could not have been imagined. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation's mission is to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The foundation supports basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience through a constellation of Kavli Institutes at academic universities internationally and through programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters science, interacts with it, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
elbow grease, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day, and Internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Carla Schatz. While you express the idea that it's possible that someday there will be some kind of medication that can enhance learning. You didn't start out to figure that out, I don't think. You started out to try to understand how the brain works, right? Correct, correct. Yes, I mean, uh, what I, I only realized later that, that what we, the work we've been doing for so many years might even have some clinical relevance, which made me sort of excited. But my interest in neuroscience was really driven by an interest, not just even in how the brain works, but how we see. Very specific question. Because What led you to that? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I think it was sort of an effort to merge my interests in both art and in science. Because you know, when I grew up uh, as a little girl, I, I loved both. My my dad was an aeronautical engineer, and my mom was a, an artist uh, and um, very serious painter. And I loved both. And I went to college, um, you know, thinking I would somehow... First, I thought I'd be an astrophysicist, and then I realized that I just didn't... Could not... I, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. It was too complicated... Um, <laughs> it's so funny. You know, so you chose the brain, which is not I so chose complicated. The brain. Yeah, I know, like, duh. <laughs> exactly. Well, so then I thought, okay, chemistry. I'll do chemistry. And I love chemistry, but then by the time I was getting to be in my junior, senior year, I also realized that, you know, physical chemistry was, was not something I, I thought would be really fun for me to do for my entire life. And I still was taking these wonderful art and visual perception courses uh, and, and uh, you know, sculpture courses and things. And I went to my chemistry professor and I said, you know, I, I love, I just don't know what to do. I love both things, but I really am interested in how the brain processes visual information. And miraculously, he pointed me to two people with whom I could do my, my honors undergraduate thesis work. And they turned out to be David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel, who many years later received the Nobel Prize in medicine and phys- or physiology for their work on studying brain mechanisms of vision. But, you know, nobody knew that at the time. And I went to um, work with them and watch them do experiments and read. And I just, was that was it. You know, that was the end. And I knew that I wanted to study how the central connections of the brain lead to perception. 
And, and, and that, that hooked me. That led you into what we've been talking about somehow. Yeah, how, so somehow because, how you know, neurons once, work. Yeah, because you want to, I mean, so once I learned something about these, you know, unbelievably complex but beautiful circuits for that underlie vision, I wanted to know how do you wire them up? I mean, how in the world do these connections even get formed in development? So I kind of wanted to go all the way back and ask, what are the brain mechanisms for developmental circuit formation? And that's really what I'm still working on. That's so interesting that here I'm talking to somebody who is really driven by curiosity. How does nature work at its most basic level? And you save for later whether or not it's going to be applicable to becoming a pill of some kind. The curiosity seems much more important to you. Absolutely. And I, I worry very much about the viability of that kind of curiosity-driven research now. Um, I think, uh, you know, many fundamental discoveries uh, lead, and you can think of many examples, you know, lead uh, later even unanticipated ways to uh, applications, you know, translational applications, whether it's in medicine or even in other fields. And, you know, who knows if what we're studying now really will help people who have neurodegenerative disorders. I mean, I believe it will, but, you know, it's it's far from that at the moment. I really look at my own um, contributions, not in a really personal way, but as, as, as helping to build a framework for you know, feud the future. And actually, I've, I see one of my major responsibilities as training uh, the next generation of scientists be, who will continue to build on that framework. But if you don't have a fundamental framework to build on, then in the future, you know, there will be no translational discoveries. And I, I worry that our country has not, uh, thinks we're already there. And, and uh, you know, so many mysteries remain <laughs> to be discovered and unraveled, and there's nothing more fun than being the first to see it. Carla, you've been doing something for the last couple of decades that's really interesting called BioX. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, I would love to, but if I tell you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> Why? What's the big secret? <laughs> well, the X in BioX is the secret. <laughs> <laughs> Why, why is it X? What's okay, X? Okay, so yes, exactly. Why is it X? So it's bio plus let X equal chemistry, physics, engineering, uh, oh, you know, oh, biology. Bringing, bringing biology together yes, with everything else. Yes. So this is a, a Stanford program, and it's, it's really almost a, a way of thinking now that encourages uh, faculty and students to... Um, collaborate across disciplines in order to try to answer big questions that are not answerable uh, within your own lab or with one technique. And, you know, there's so many of those really big questions now um, that have to do, especially, you know, with, in the theme of human health and uh, the life sciences. But BioX is a, a mechanism to encourage people to find the collaborators they need in order to answer their big questions. So what I've seen over time is that this kind of bringing together of diff different disciplines is probably what's going to be necessary to be able to look even deeper into nature. But what I also have think I think I've observed 
is that the more you bring together people of far-flung disciplines, the more you have a problem in communication and getting them to understand one another, to, to, mm-hmm. to use the same term in different ways and that kind of thing. How do you handle that? What, what's <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> yes, it's really hard. I mean, I mean, just from my own experience first, you know, I mean, when we made the discoveries that these immune molecules were being used by the neurons to regulate the synaptic pruning and stability. Uh, And I started to read about what these immune molecules, what the equivalent functions of these molecules is in the immune system. I I really... uh, I became, I, I, I fell into despair because, you know, I had always thought that the nervous system is so complicated. I was really happy I would never have to learn about anything in the immune system. <laughs> you know, you always, you always get what you fear most, right? So you have these two disciplines, you know, equally so, remarkable and complex, right? So now you've got two scientists. Each one has spent a lifetime studying within that person's silo. Yes. And now they have yes. to collaborate in detail yes. over some new kind of discovery. Yes. That, that sounds like a really tough problem. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's so much fun, too, though, because, first of all, when this happened, uh, I went to some of my colleagues in immunology, and, of course, the first thing they did was they just cracked up. They thought it's, you know, can't be right. You know? <laughs> but then they got, they got intrigued, and then it took a long time, I mean, really trying to explain what these what we think they're doing in the brain and they try to explain you know what they think they're doing in the periphery in the immune system and then how could they help us uh, you know to study their function in the brain and one thing they really could help with were, were uh, mice models that they'd made to study the immune system which doesn't take a lot of you know of understanding they just gave us the mice <laughs> you know but but you have to have a road you have to have a pathway that's been paved or you have to pave a pathway into these into these collaborations right and what i learned just from my own experience i mean this sounds silly and maybe crass but you know if you pave the road with money they will come <laughs> <laughs> and they'll even understand better <laughs> they will. They'll definitely make an effort. So, I mean, many of the things that BioX does is we make um, kind of challenge grants and, and uh, fellowships uh, to, to really entice people to try to, to speak the other person's language. But I love that you use the word silo because I think what I like to think is that our program, BioX, Stanford BioX, is trying to break down silos by creating these collaborations that we think... Uh, are innovative and will lead to new discoveries. Right. Well, you you make me think of how hard it must be, however they get together, for them to really collaborate on exploring the unknown, because I imagine it must be daunting for the individual who says, and I think of you as a kid skiing with your father <laughs> at the top of a mountain, and you can't even see the bottom of the mountain. And that the bottom of the mountain for me is, the unknown thing you're liable to will you will it be there when you get there? Will will there be anything there? Or are you going to ski into a forest of trees? Yeah, forests are off the edge of the world, right? Yeah, <laughs> but you yeah. developed you seem to have developed that ability from skiing itself. 
Yes, I mean, I feel that that if you have trained in any way to uh, really rely on your own abilities, you know, which is something requiring extensive training, but if you can feel that you you have a kind of self-reliance, then then you can take risks. For me, actually, I think in that sense, um, you know, doing as a kid, uh, uh, doing a lot of skiing, I could begin to build. So I could then translate that. I mean, I think that's maybe another characteristic you need is not only that you you learn that you can trust in your own strength and ability, but also that it generalizes from you know, let's say the one thing like the sport um, to other aspects of life, um, including, you know, taking risks in science. But I think in both cases, there's a kind of great sense of curiosity that drives you maybe to danger. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you kind of want to know what's down that uh, ski run. (laughs) Do you have your heart set on the next door you want to see opened in your field? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, this is totally selfish. I, I, I want us to really make cures to neurodegenerative disorders. They're so devastating, and and I've had a number of family members who have um, really suffered from those over the years. And I think it's an enormous challenge. Um, so, you know, there are wonderful moonshot questions that have to do with fundamental neuroscience, but I, I feel I'm worried. I feel like uh, we may have invested too much time and energy in too few ideas and that more out-of-the-box thinking has to happen before uh, we can have some really big breakthroughs. I'm worried about that. And I have my heart set that... Uh, we'll be able somehow to empower people, researchers, to to really come up with wonderful cures fast. That's great. I, our time is pretty much up, but we always end our show with seven quick questions <laughs> that are r- sort of they're sort of roughly related to communication. They're not embarrassing. Oh, here's the first question. What do you wish you really understood? <laughs> I really wish I understood human behavior. I think I'd be a much better person, a much better leader. I definitely would have been a much better wife <laughs> if I understood human behavior. Sounds like we have another <laughs> podcast in that answer. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Oh, I'm just bad about that. I just tell them right to their face. I'm not, I, and I wish I didn't. I, so that would be another thing I would wish is that I was a little more diplomatic. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, I'm I'm going to have to dodge that and think about it because I don't know that I've ever had a truly, you know, out of left field question because I've always tried to think. Let's see, what did they mean by that? Right. What were they thinking? <laughs> And, of course, it's really strange questions that have probably led you to the discoveries you've made. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) How do you stop a compulsive talker? (laughs) Since I am one, um, (laughs) I have no idea. I mean, you had to, you had to interrupt me a few times just to get a few words in as so. No, no. I, part of that is because of the lag on the Internet. 
Thank you for being nice. Let's say you're at a dinner party. You're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? Oh, that's a, that's a lovely question. Um, I often will, I will just often start and ask them about themselves. And often it starts by asking them what they do. Um, uh, and I get a lot of nice answers, but it's, I think it's an easy way to get a, a, a dinner table conversation going because no matter what they do, they can always say what they do. And it leads into interesting places. And I have to say that um, it also allows me to understand something about them because if they never ask me what I do, <laughs> I write them off. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know what that's like. What gives you confidence? You know, I, I, uh, I know that I have confidence and I'm a real um, glass half full person. Um, you know, we talked about the confidence you get from excelling at a, um, at something like a sport. Uh, I think what, what gives you confidence when you excel is not only your ability, but as you're learning, you get confidence from the encouragement of your mentors, your parents, mm -hmm. and then later your mentors. And I think, uh, when you have parents, really great parents and really great mentors, you're very, very lucky because they are able, even you know, when you in, in your toughest times and darkest times, um, they can point out the glass half full, and uh, you learn from that. But there may be some innate thing in it too, you know. Uh, but I, I generally believe it's a it's the environment and. Uh, Having great mentors makes a really important difference in life. Yeah. Last question. What book changed your life? <laughs> hmm. You know, I have to say, <laughs> it's nothing recent. I think I loved science fiction when I was a kid. And I think the books by Robert, was it Robert Heinlein? Probably... May, that's what got me into astrophysics, and then it got me quickly out of <laughs> astrophysics. But but I think it allowed me to really, you know, not just take me away, you know, from my my current life, but it could take me to different universes. And you have to remember, I think you do, that when I was a kid growing up, and the reason I loved science is because I went to public school. Uh, when science was a priority of funding because it was during Sputnik and during the space race. And so I think uh, this was uh, a, a time when, uh, you know, science classes uh, were experimental. I mean, I'll never forget the chemistry and the physics classes I took where I could blow things up <laughs> in the <laughs> lab, you know, and get do hands-on. But I, I think... Uh, many people were probably very excited at that time with, because of science fiction. And I think as a girl, um, and with the encouragement of my family, um, those early books uh, really took me away and into different universes. Well, thank goodness they did. This has been a wonderful <laughs> conversation. I, I hope I never get it pruned from my brain. Oh, I hope so too. But I, I feel a little bit like I could. I would love to interview you as well. And and I also want to really thank you for 
the wonderful things you have been doing for science over all these years oh, and reminding you, people, just reminding people, you know, how important it is. It's, um, the, way I can, now. it's the way I can use my own curiosity to just to talk to you and folks like you who can delight me with what you do. Well, thank you, and don't ever stop. <laughs> I, I won't. <laughs> thank thank you. you. It was great, Carlos. Thank, thank you. you so Be much. well. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Carla Schatz is a professor in the Department of Biology at Stanford University. And for the last 13 years, she's been director of Stanford's BioX. Her award of the 2016 Copley Prize in Neuroscience was for her work in how the brain wires itself up. And you can find out more about that work by visiting her lab page, schatzlab, S-H-A-T-Z-L-A-B, dot stanford, dot E-D-U, and by checking the Copley Prize website. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods. They've written a wonderfully engaging book that explores the interesting idea that what makes us humans human is what we have in common with our dogs, our friendliness. We're the friendliest species of human that ever evolved, and it was a major advantage. And the, the idea is that when we recognize that it 50, it, it's only been 50,000 years, if that, that we've been alone on the planet as the only human. And so we think that thinking about how uh, our culture exploded in the last 50,000 years points to friendliness. Well, we call it survival of the friendliest because it's a particular kind of friendliness that we're talking about, kind of like a mama bear, where, you know, when is the mama bear most beautiful? It's when she's with her cubs and she's loving and kind, but that is also the moment when she's most dangerous. Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>